EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. The City of Bloomington is working to expand the City's network of multi-purpose trails. In their Tuesday meeting, the Bloomington Board of Public Works approved a coordination contract with Indiana Department of Transportation for the extension of the Beeline Trail. Currently, the three-mile-long trail runs from North Adams Street through the downtown area to the north side of Country Club Drive. Project engineer Neil Coper says the extension will take the trail farther north. So this is a new project before the board. It would extend the Beeline Trail from its existing terminus at Adams Street to connect up to multi-use path on 17th Street that, uh, with a new overpass built over the future I-69, could then connect to the west side of Bloomington. Copper says the project is being funded with $1 million in federal construction funds. The project is part of the larger Bloomington-Monroe County Metropolitan Planning Organization's Transportation Improvement Plan. Copper says engineering design work for the project will likely start next year. Construction is expected to begin in 2021. Senior project manager Roy Ayton received approval for a similar INDOT coordination contract to create a recreational path on Bloomington's southeast side. Uh, this project will construct a multi-use path and trail that interconnects Southeast Park and Arden Drive, South High Street, Childs Elementary School, Southern Oaks Park, Roar Road, Sarah Road Multi-Use Path, Jackson Creek Middle School. The project is listed within the MPO tip and programmed to use $2,123,403 in reimbursable federal funds. Design is scheduled to begin this year and construction will begin in 2021. The board also approved a $6,000 contract with engineering firm Shrewsbury & Associates for design plans for a new sidewalk and pedestrian crossing on 10th Street near University Elementary School. A $76,000 consulting contract with HWC Engineering was also approved during the Board of Public Works meeting on Tuesday. That contract is for the installation of pedestrian safety features at intersections around town, including countdown timers, push buttons, curb ramps, and crosswalks. The Brown County Convention and Visitors Bureau's LEAF webcam is up and running in preparation for the turn of the season. Autumn's colors bring millions of spectators from around the world to Brown County. Aubrey Sitzman, Public Relations Coordinator at the Brown County Convention Bureau, says the department can offer some of the best spaces to overlook the trees. Roughly, I think we get around like 3 million visitors a year, and we get usually around 1 million of those in October. 
So that's definitely our busiest month. We get so many people who come to Brown County in the fall to look at the leaves that this is a way that people can look at them before they come or if they don't get a chance to come so that everyone can enjoy our fall foliage because it's something that we're known for. The Visitors Bureau recommends mid-October is the peak time for viewing changing leaves. The leaf webcam is currently placed overlooking bean blossom so that viewers can watch a time lapse of the leaves as they turn colors. The camera does live feed as well. Fall is an exciting time in Brown County, so if people get a chance to come out and, you know, be part of the excitement, see the leaves, spend some time in town or at the state park or in other places in the county, it's a great experience. And just stay tuned to the leaf cam and you can just experience the fall day by day with us, even if you can't come. The Brown County Leaf Camera is available online at the Brown County website or through the Discover Brown County app. Recently, we reported on opposition to the Atlantic Sunrise Fract gas pipeline, which was to run through Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and the nuns of the Order Adorers of the Blood, who objected to the pipelines going through their property as a violation of their religious beliefs and environmental values. To protest the pipeline, the nuns built an open-air chapel on their farmland, which the pipeline line company was attempting to seize. Because of a judge's recent ruling, the pipeline company is now allowed to condemn the rights of way on the nuns and other properties and immediately take possession of the land. The nuns said they're assessing their next steps. Their lawyer says they have a limited right to appeal in eminent domain cases. Meanwhile, the nuns are pursuing their lawsuit against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. The nuns claim that the interstate pipeline violates their rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 20 California cities, including San Francisco and San Diego, are suing Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, BP, and Royal Dutch Shell for costs the cities are facing because of climate change. According to a joint announcement from the attorneys representing San Francisco and Oakland, they're attempting to hold those companies, the world's five largest investor-owned fossil fuel producers, responsible, quote, for the costs of seawalls and other infrastructure necessary to protect San Francisco and Oakland from ongoing and future consequences of climate change and sea level rise caused by the company's production of massive amounts of fossil fuels, unquote. The cities are seeking an abatement fund of billions of dollars and claim that for decades the fossil fuel companies knew about but covered up the hazards of climate change. Over 6% of the rise in global sea level came from emissions produced by ExxonMobil, Chevron, and BP, the three largest contributors. This year, we've experienced a series of powerful hurricanes. How are they formed? Is climate change a factor? Climate scientist Michael Mann of Penn State says, quote, the science is now fairly clear that climate change will make strong storms stronger, unquote. Three factors must be present for hurricane formation. First, the storm must develop over warm water. The water must be at least 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The warm water provides the energy for increased evaporation of water from the ocean surface. The warm water must be deep enough, typically at least 200 feet, to increase the energy available to the storm. This year, the water temperatures in the hurricane formation zone have been historically high, even reaching 90 degrees in some areas. The result is in keeping with what climate scientists have been saying for years is true, that warmer temperatures lead to more violent storms. 
A second requirement for hurricane formation is there should be very little wind shear in the area. Strong wind shear can stop the formation of hurricane eye walls. A third factor in hurricane formation is the rapid cooling of air temperature high above the water. This allows for condensation to occur and quick development of more cloud formation in the storm wall. This year's crop of hurricanes have been devastating, but they have been foretold. The question is whether the deniers will acknowledge this additional evidence of global climate change. Over two years ago, the public interest law firm Earth Justice began working with a coalition of health, firefighter, consumer, and science groups to ban the use of organohalogens, a class of toxic flame retardant chemicals in children's products, furniture, mattresses, and the casings around electronics. More than 80,000 people signed a petition urging a ban on the chemicals. On September 20th, the Consumer Product Safety Commission took important steps toward ensuring that Americans are protected from the haphazards of organohalogens. The commission directed its staff to begin the rulemaking process to ban the sale of particular consumer products if they contain any organohalogens flame retardants. The commission also voted to issue a strongly worded guide warning the public of the hazards of organohalogens pose. Last, the commission voted to convene a chronic hazard advisory panel to provide scientific expertise to commission staff as they developed the rules the commission called for on the 20th. On September 19th, an Indiana State Legislative Study Committee heard almost six hours of public testimony on confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. About 100 people commented as the committee considers the CAFO and animal agriculture regulations in Indiana. Most of those commenting were opposed to CAFOs. One person said the state goes too far in protecting CAFOs to the detriment of traditional agriculture, pointing out that CAFOs potentially discourage economic development and decrease property values. Most of those testifying said the disorganized local regulations on CAFOs don't take into account the adverse effects of these farms, including harming water quality, producing noxious odors, and causing a decline in property values. Some people commented that there should be mandatory buffer zones around waterways and a moratorium on new CAFO construction. A small group of animal welfare advocates said that CAFOs are cruel and recommended that more Hoosiers adopt vegan diets. Increasing carbon dioxide levels in the oceans could lead to the world's sixth mass extinction event, according to a geophysics professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Daniel Rothman recently published a paper in the journal Science Advances predicting that the world's oceans could hold enough carbon by the year 2100 to trigger a sixth mass extinction in them. Rothman said that if nothing is done to prevent it, quote, the carbon cycle would move into a realm which would be no longer stable and would behave in a way that would be difficult to predict. In the geological past, this type of behavior is associated with mass extinction, end quote. Several of the five mass extinctions thus far have had contributions from carbon dioxide. The most species were lost at the Perimin-Triassic boundary mass extinction some 250 million years ago, caused by a massive release of carbon dioxide. 
This event caused 96% of all marine species and 76% of terrestrial vertebrate species to go extinct. It is the only known mass extinction of insects. Others have concluded that we have already entered the sixth extinction event, caused not by carbon dioxide levels, but rather by habitat loss. While the drop in large animal populations, such as 90% drop in wild tiger population is well known, many species in both plant and animal kingdoms have seen similar drops in populations. Extinction from carbon dioxide, according to this interpretation, kicks in later, perhaps as Rothman says, around the year 2100. Thus, habitat loss, followed by too much carbon dioxide, combined to cause this mass extinction. E.O. Wilson, the noted biologist from Harvard, has predicted the Earth could lose 50% of its species in this event. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Today's Eco Report feature story, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy interviews Abby Hankel, Communications Director for Sycamore Land Trust. This is Norm Holy from WFHB, and today I'm speaking with Abby Hankel. She's the Communications Director for the Sycamore Land Trust. I, I know that you've got a lot of things going on at the uh, Trust. Um, I'm particularly curious about uh, the uh, bean blossom bottoms because that was part of the bicentennial um, acquisition so a very large acquisition so what's 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 the progress there so bean blossom bottoms is a property that we've been building onto for about 20 years now um, it's a really important wetland habitat in Monroe County and uh, with a bicentennial nature trust uh, was a project that gave us a million dollars matching grant to add on to that. So we used that for a couple years to acquire strategic land around the area, but we're still adding on to it. Um, And something we did this summer is we acquired about 115 acres in the Bean Blossom Creek area, not directly attached to the nature preserve itself, uh, but attached to another one that we acquired a couple years ago called the Sam Shine Foundation Preserve. And so we acquired 115 new acres. It's recovering farmland that, uh, over time, just like Bean Blossom Bottoms, will restore to just become a, a wetland. And this is kind of upland habitat up above the creek. Overall, what are, what are the goals of the Bean Blossom Bottoms area? Well, wetlands are just really fantastic ecosystems. They provide a lot of habitat that can't be found elsewhere. So that's been a strategy of ours to build up Bean Blossom Bottoms over the years just because there's nothing like a wetland habitat as far as the diversity of species that it can support. So overall, we just hope to keep adding on to it over the years. Um, We're pretty strategic about the land that we acquire there. Um, We can't just take anything, um, but anything along that watershed, um, we, we consider acquiring um, and adding on to the preserve. And then what we do with that, of course, is uh, we let it revert back to nature. So um, sometimes that requires a gentle hand, just kind of um, 
controlling invasive species, and sometimes it requires a little bit more effort, like planting native species, um, helping other um, wildlife populations kind of grow there. How far is the um, western end of that Bean Blossom Bottoms protection area from the McCormick Creek Park? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I could not tell you for sure, though. Okay. I'm not sure about how that connects there. Uh-huh. What else is happening at the Sycamore Land Trust? Well, we've got a lot going on. Um, one big thing that we've focused on recently is increasing our land stewardship imprint or our land stewardship um, effect that we can have. Because we keep acquiring more land, we need to do more to protect it. Um, and a lot of that takes active work, a lot of active restoration projects. So uh, this year we were able to hire our first land stewardship manager. His name is Chris Fox, and we're, we're really excited to have him. He just joined us in August. And um, Chris's position was actually funded by a private donor. Her name's Darlene Gerster, and she talked to Sycamore. She's been a donor for years, and she said, I really want to make a difference. What can I do to really help? I'm going to give you a big grant. And we said, well, what we need to do is have stability in our land stewardship project and make sure that we can continue this over time and continually take care of the growing amount of land that we protect. So she actually gave us uh, a grant and a pledge totaling $200,000 to fund um, Chris's position for four years. And what he's doing is just solely focusing on taking care of the land. And he's been here a month, and he has already done incredible work with all the projects that he's doing. He's at a different property every day. Yesterday he was rebuilding a bridge in the 90-degree sun. Um, and before that, he, last week he was tagging monarch butterflies to track their progress to Mexico with about 15 volunteers. Um, and he's just across the board making changes that are going to have really positive impacts on our properties. I'm, I'm just curious about the, the monarch situation because I haven't seen a lot of monarchs this summer. Have you... Ha located areas where there are... Yeah, so we have something called the Native Plant Project, um, which is part of our uh, environmental education program, and we bring that into schools. And um, through that, we've been planting, of course, milkweeds, which are really important to monarch uh, caterpillars. It's actually the only food that they eat, um, so they depend on it. And um, pollinator populations like monarchs definitely have been uh, impacted by various things, including climate change and certain agricultural practices and just lots of other effects on them. Um, so when we plant these gardens, it's to help give them the food source that they need to build up their populations again. And in these gardens, we've actually been seeing sometimes, you know, 30 or 40 dozens of monarch caterpillars. Um, and their population this year is actually a little bit delayed in terms of the population that's about to migrate. Um, so we have noticed that they're delayed, but I think that that doesn't mean that there's a major decline. I'm not an expert on monarch butterflies, but What's happening is it just seems like things are happening a couple weeks later than normal. One of the ways of determining the overall population is, of course, to go to the area in Mexico where they overwinter. And last winter, there were only 10 acres of, uh, of the woodlands that, that had monarchs, uh, whereas historically it was about 40 acres or almost 50 acres. So they're, they're still really in a very endangered position Yes, absolutely. And so this tagging project um, is one way. It's, it's a citizen science project, which we just love to encourage here because it gets everyday people involved in science and really making a difference. And so what this tagging project does is people, anyone who has these tags, and you have to you know, get them at a certain time and register them because you don't want to put them on monarchs for a population that, um, for the generation of monarchs that won't be migrating. It's the, the certain generation that has to go 
to Mexico. So you put these little stickers on them, and then um, they migrate to Mexico. And once the butterfly dies, then a scientist finds them and looks for the tag and actually plugs it into the database to track where it came from and kind of let us know that the bu butterflies made it there. So projects like this help scientists like keep a tabs on the populations and see how they're doing and see if they're really migrating like they should be. How many acres are under the management of the Sycamore Land Trust? Currently it's uh, about 9,200, I think is the number. Um, and that includes acres that we own, which is about 5,000, and acres that we have conservation easements on, which is about 4,000. Um, and when we own land, of course, both of these categories we protect forever. So if we own land, it will forever be owned by Sycamore Land Trust um, and actively stewarded by people like Chris, our new land stewardship manager. Um, when there's a conservation easement on it, it means that uh, it stays in private ownership by whoever owned that land, but they have a contract with us and that we are legally bound to protect certain conservation assets, whatever they write into this contract. So um, maybe they want no commercial timbering on their property, or they have a pond that they want to keep protected, um, things like that. So those are properties that we still protect forever, no matter who owns them. Um, so, yeah, the number now is about 9,200. That's fantastic. It's grown fairly rapidly over the last several years. Yeah, definitely over the last 10 years, we've, um, I want to say we've more than doubled um, and that's just due to the fact that there's a lot of land to protect out there, and people are really starting to see the benefits of keeping land wild. Um, so we, we like to feel like we've done a pretty good job of showing people that they can trust us with the land. And, um, yeah, so it's grown a lot, and we're going to keep growing as we see land that um, needs to be protected. Terrific. I'd like to thank you for the interview. I've been speaking with Abby Hankel, Communications Director for the Sycamore Land Trust. Thank you very much. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And it's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. Monarchs are one of our most easily recognized and beloved butterflies. Their long trip to overwinter in the mountains of southern Mexico has thrilled people of all ages who see in this tiny, fragile creature a remarkable endurance. Monarchs have several broods during the breeding season, and it is only the last that wends its way southwest. The larva's sole food are leaves of milkweed plants that once thrived along roads and borders of farms. Milkweeds contain cardioactive compounds, which sicken animals that try to eat them and which are mildly toxic to humans. The monarch, however, is immune to these poisons and actually incorporates them into their tissues so that they too are toxic to in insectivores. Roundup herbicides, habitat destruction, and weed-free culture of our roadsides has caused a precipitous decline in the numbers of these butterflies. Adding milkweed to your garden will encourage monarch females to lay her eggs and provide the larva with sustenance. It will also enable you to see the wonders of metamorphosis as this humble caterpillar transforms itself into the beautiful butterfly.
You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And now for our weekly community events calendar. As part of National Public Lands Day, there will be a Wildflower Meadow Work Day at Brown County State Park on Saturday, September 30th from 10 a.m. to noon. This project meets by the Hoosers Nest in the Wildflower Meadow and will allow you to help eradicate invasive species and help reseed next year's flowers. Tools will be supplied, but bring your own work gloves, good footwear, water, and safety glasses. Also in celebration of National Public Lands Day, take a hike through Stillwater Marsh on Saturday, September 30th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. to learn how the area's wildlife is managed. Explore crops planted for wildlife food, check out nesting boxes, and see where and how the marsh gets flooded each year to create a seasonal wetland and explore the types of trees, plants, and animals that live there. Call 812-837-9967 for more information. Meet at the Waterfowl Check Station on Kent Road. If you would like to work on your flora identification skills and practice with a naturalist, plan on attending Flora Field Day on Tuesday, October 3rd at Monroe Lake from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Field Day emphasis is on proper use and application of an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. Bring a copy of Newcomb's Wildflower Guide if you have one, Bug spray, wear long pants, bring a hat and sunglasses and a water bottle. Please register by October 1st. Call 812-837-9967 for more information. Conservation expert Lee Sterenberg will take hikers along the Bean Blossom Creek Corridor to learn about migratory birds with the weekday walkers on Wednesday, October 4th at Trevlack Bluffs Nature Preserve from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Participants will also visit the Little Africa property on Lake Lemon's South Shore Drive and finish with a stop at private property on Lake Lemon. Call 812-336-5382 to learn more and to register. And finally, join the naturalist for a relaxing journey stick walk through the early autumn woods while creating your own quote journey stick on saturday october 7th from 10:30 a.m to 11:30 a.m at paintown state recreation area at monroe lake journey sticks help you capture memories without a camera so you spend less time looking at a screen and more time looking at the beauty around you And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, and Alex Davis. Norm Holy produced our feature. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Kirsten Payton. 
Producer is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.